The number one value that influences my communication is honesty. Communication is all about expression of self and some people aren't very honest and it reflects in their communication. My beliefs, they can be manipulated by outside forces and therefore dictate how I act. In all communication, the most important thing I learn is to be self-aware. On page 28, it talks about self-monitoring. When I was a kid, I did more self-monitoring than speaking, so I had to become a practice to communicate instead of only analyzing myself and being self-conscious, which at the end of the day, that's a selfish habit to have. While reading the textbook, I saw that the studies show the most important predicator of happiness in life is marital happiness. I had trouble when I was younger. I didn't know how to speak to females when I was growing up, but through life experience, I was able to figure it out. There are five needs that are served by communication. Even something as personal as a spiritual need, if unfulfilled, can cause some people to externalize their trouble onto others or to damage themselves with negative self-talk and too much psychological noise. Many people are unaware of how loud their mind is and never take the time to reset. Communication passes through perceptual filters. Depending on my own personal perspective of the situation or individuals I need to communicate with, I may react differently if certain variables come into play. Metacommunication. Now this is the process of communicating about communication. It's what we're doing here today. We can use this tool to have a clear avenue of communication between two or more people. It is important to examine yourself to see if your perception has been polluted by outside forces. As I was growing up, I found out a lot of my beliefs did not come from my own mind and instead were placed there from outside sources. Parents, friends, TV, media. Most of this boils down to a lack of communication with yourself. Does the internet make us happier or does it keep us more disconnected? According to the research, the internet brings the most benefit to people of lower income, lower education, and whammy. I think whammy benefit from the internet because it allows them to communicate freely. The internet is just safer in general for people to communicate with each other and people also have the ability to portray anonymous profiles, which is especially popular in the year 2022. The eyes communicate more than any part of the face. When I was a kid, my dad, he taught me the importance of this. He realized that I had an issue with looking people in the eyeballs, so we had a conversation about it. I remember thinking it was super weird at the time, but over the years growing up and having an actual experience trying to relate to other humans, I'm grateful for the quick lesson. I was amazed by the fact that your pupils will dilate when you look at somebody you find physically attractive. This could possibly be attributed to the drug-like effects of certain stimulus, such as seeing somebody doing a flip and your brain gets pumped full of adrenaline, or you're walking around the neighborhood and suddenly a bomb goes off nearby and fear floods over your entire brain, leading you to freeze, flight, or fight. What are you going to do? Emojis. They become associated with our daily method of communication. And according to Floyd, we can introduce nonverbal cues through the use of emojis, cartoon depictions of faces, and other objects that first became popular on Japanese cell phone services. The emoji has been in a few conceptual discussions for being a new type of hieroglyphics. This is brought up to the round table by Joe Rogan, and I agree with this concept, especially analyzing the way the majority of society communicates on an everyday basis. And I enjoy having thoughtful conversations, but I also have the tendency to more often than not communicate through images, emojis, GIFs, just do the simplicity. You can send somebody a picture of a thumbs up, they understand what you're saying. Humans, they prefer to believe nonverbal signals over verbal communication. This is essential for detecting deception. 
I grew up in an Asian household and had to communicate with many English illiterate foreigners, all my aunties, and this experience proved useful. When I moved to Japan, I was able to easily get through a combination of gestures, 10 Japanese phrases, that's all I needed to get through. Gestures are physical body movements and positions that convey a certain meaning. In Japan, the bow is the most significant gesture you'll see even the deer do it. While most business establishments will require their employees to bow when serving, it is communicated as a sign of real respect through all conversation. And if I were to bow to somebody in America, they might get the wrong idea. This is a very good example of the difference in cultural norms. Now, let's talk about the four spatial zones intimate, personal, social, and public. I've seen in my travels that these zones are more common in different areas around the globe. In more condensed populated countries and cities, the social zone might not be 4 to 12 feet like in America, but only 0 to 18 inches because of the limited space. One of the reasons I believe that I'm very prude about my personal bubble, I don't like people being in my space. It's the fact that I grew up in a studio apartment, housing five plus family members at the time, you know, very uh, foreign. This isn't the best home environment for a child to grow up in. And I'm sure many of you in the audience are living just like that. Hey man, I understand. It sucks. But one day when you're when you're all grown up, you can get yourself a little tiny apartment and uh, yeah, be in a pod alone. Nonverbal communication, it's part of our lives. That same way that breathing is. We need it in order to survive. We can work on our nonverbal communication skills by training ourselves to pay attention to how others react to our behavior with a non-biased outlook, working on our self-awareness and practice being self-expressive. I knew I had anxiety when I was around 13 years old and slowly over the course of my life, I started with pills, but slowly over the course of my life, I took myself off those pills. I've worked on myself through self-awareness, interacting with others on purpose for practice. And now I feel very detached from social anxiety. The researching nonverbal communication has taught me to never stop trying to learn because that's something that I don't really practice. There's an unlimited amount of ways we can communicate with other humans and with all of this knowledge, we can apply it in our daily practice. Most people don't give much thought to how well they listen. Are you listening to me right now? I'm willing to bet that the majority of people have never considered listening as a skill that can be developed, trained like a muscle, put calluses upon calluses, layers upon layers. And now there's four distinct styles of listening. Humans, very emotional creatures, and they will dictate every action they ever perform in life based on how their emotions affect them. So the relational style of communication is the most prevalent in American culture. When we hear our coworker complaining for the thousandth time, we usually emphasize emotional concern instead of giving them any resistance. My favorite style of listening, analytical. I enjoy asking a ton of questions and getting to the root reason why this person is saying these things. The final stage of effective listening is responding. Out of the seven methods of response given by Floyd, the method I use most frequently, paraphrasing, analyzing. I would have never considered stonewalling a legitimate form of responding, but the fact that it is intentional, it makes it a tactic. And that's used by many people who've never learned how to communicate their thoughts and feelings. And if we were to teleport back in time to the year 1999 and explain the internet of the year 2022 to those people back then, people would assume that the planet would not have any communication issues at all. We can send and receive messages near instantaneously, which is nothing short of magic. 
But despite all this dramatic improvement thanks to tech, communication is becoming a misunderstood topic. And I think what our entire planet can benefit from learning how to truly listen to each other and properly respond. Depending on the situation, different techniques can have different results. Advising is a process of communicating advice about what he or she should think or feel or do. This can be a great way to help somebody out, but if they never asked for this type of response, it could end up poorly, and it's usually the most common way that we respond to somebody that's complaining, right? When someone is distressed, they don't want to hear a solution to their problems. Rather, their speech is more for emotional expression. You are giving them too much credit. They don't want your brilliant solution to their problem. They just want somebody to listen to them. Conflict. It's natural and something we experience every single day, unless you're blessed with extreme luck. Direct conflict used to be the more common way of engagement. If two individuals had a problem with each other, they were encouraged to settle the disagreement on honorable terms. These days, I see more often that people are encouraged to express conflict indirectly. I feel bad for all the people my age that learn most of what they know about relationships from TikTok, YouTube, celebrities, and whatever the media puts in front of them, the algorithm. I think the best method for learning how to get through conflict is training in the trenches. I knew this person once that got a text message saying, hey, your man is cheating on you. Instead of finding out the truth, my friend blasted them on social media. At the end of the day, her man did not cheat on her. But she got so swayed by her emotions that she broke off the relationship and it's over forever over something that did not happen. This is what you call an unproductive member of society. I have heard from my boomer family members that television is what killed America. I disagree slightly, but I will get behind the idea that most relationships get destroyed by cell phones. I had a girlfriend one time in high school. I was in high school too. She was obsessed with texting, and we literally texted each other more than we spoke in person. All day, 24-7. Many misunderstandings, toxic message threats, petty voicemails later. I vowed to never date somebody like this ever again. To contrast this with how I conduct my marriage, I've been married since 2017. If there is something important that needs to be discussed, I'll speak to my wife about it in person. I meant 2016. I, I got married December 2016. Ooh, I'm gonna get in trouble for that one. I have not once ever texted my wife something emotionally charged. Um, that's probably a lie. But my wife has sent me emotional messages while I was overseas. And because of my past experience with crazy girlfriends obsessed with texting, I didn't want her to get the wrong idea, so I wouldn't respond until I could call her and discuss the situation uninterrupted. Uninterrupted, but we had to go through that conflict first and figure out the way that we communicate with each other. I need a little bit of time alone so I can sort through my thoughts. This goes back to the very first part of this essay self awareness. Be aware that conflict can be beneficial, and while it's easy to identify negative aspects of conflict, a productive training technique is to see the benefits of conflict. When I was in the army, we would binge drink on the weekends. And one time I made a joke that a friend of my friend Jonas, we ended up fighting in the grass for a good 30 seconds or so. I threw a beer at him. It was open already. He got pissed. We got to the ground. After the fight though, we hugged it out and became closer than ever before. All of this was over a joke. And fighting, it's not a productive way to solve a problem, a disagreement, but from this example, we can see that even the worst type of conflict 
can lead to positive lifelong changes. We are still friends to this day, and I don't think we would be if we didn't roll around in the grass at 2am yelling at each other over a dumb joke. With the development of the internet in 1989 by CERN, the way our society operates was forever changed. The information highway was built alongside the ability to communicate with somebody across the globe instantaneously. With this new godlike technology, we saw over time how it affected our society. Research indicates that between 42 and 60% of college students have at least one friend with benefit relationship. Oh, interesting. I may be considered old school compared to my peers because I don't believe in internet dating or casual sex. I'm a Christian. My friend met his wife on World of Warcraft, so I know that online dating does work sometimes, but for me, I'd rather not participate in this new dating culture where you put yourself on the billboard. Self-degradation. No thank you. I met my wife on a random day at Subway getting sandwiches. I was actually a employee of that Subway. She was a customer. This method of dating is dead. You're not allowed to date in public anymore. Or, uh, correction. You're not allowed to hit on girls in public anymore. It's against the law. Now, we form relationships because we need to belong. There's always the story of the hermit that lives in the mountains alone. Many times I wish I could be this hermit. Time and time again, we learn our lesson the hard way that we need relations. We need people around us to share the experiences of life with. Too much time spent in isolation could drive somebody crazy. Loneliness, desperation, depression. I've met a lot of people online who are incredibly lonely, who spend 100% of their waking hours in forums, apps, Discord servers, just trying to connect with somebody. And I really feel for them, and I hope that they find somebody that they can share their life with. But relationships don't materialize overnight. They evolve over time and come together in stages. One common mistake with most people, they get overly excited by the new friendships in their life and may smother them with attention. This is an easy mistake to make with the ease of access to sending and receiving messages. Conflict, it's a war, a series of battles with winners and losers. With this concept in mind, we could take a step back and assume the role of a commander on the battlefield. This can be the mental preparation that most people do before a big meeting, interview, speech, staring at yourself in the mirror, admitting that you're a human being with flaws and imperfections, but you're going to keep on moving forward regardless. Conflict. It's often communicated verbally, but it can also be conveyed with nonverbal behaviors. Humans tend to believe nonverbal communication over any form. Remember this, the next time you're talking to somebody, they will believe your physical reaction over anything that comes out of your mouth. So with this in mind, we can learn to not only improve our verbal communication, but the way we express ourselves physically. And sometimes, relationships become so damaged that both parties believe the situation is broken beyond repair. That's a loser's mentality, because that's not the case at all. Conflict. Natural part of relationships, natural part of life. So we should learn the best way to move through the conflict and get to the other side. It's not so bad. The majority of people try to avoid conflict, but that is a communication strategy in itself, avoidance. There's always a choice. Instead, we should take a gander at the situation, analyze it before making the next decision. You might feel anxiety, get over it. Sometimes we make mistakes. That's just the nature of communication. Technology in terms of the internet, cell phones, and all other telecommunication devices has given our planet both positive and negative benefits. It has given people access to information that nobody on Earth ever had before our time. It's allowed someone in China to communicate with somebody in 
America, all the way across the globe on their shared interests, whatever those may be. Maybe it's over Valorant, maybe it's over conspiracy theories, maybe it's over a political viewpoint. Whatever it is, this is the beauty of the internet. Or you can use it to throw shit at each other on Twitter. It's given the opportunity for people to find love all the way across the world. And COVID-19 exposed how fragile our civilization is. How one virus can come around and change the way we live. Quarantine went hand in hand with the internet. Many continuing to work from home. This is an example of the potential that our technology has for the future of communication. Maybe one day we won't even need to physically get up and leave our houses. Until that day, I'll continue to improve my communication skills and use our modern day technology to assist me in achieving this goal. The self-to-self communication model sparked my interest because while most people try to externalize their thoughts towards the other person, most forget that all communication begins in your own mind. The model suggests that an individual's preference, images of self, confidence, awareness of others, and many other variables dictate our response to the conversation. Our ability to take in the environment, events, and culture around us is filtered through our own concepts of self, the other, sexual attraction, relationship status, and more. Communicators generally use strategies to reduce uncertainty about the other person, to be able to predict the behavior of yourself and react accordingly. Now, motivation is a big variable in whether the conversation will be a good one or a bad one. If one person stayed up all night studying, their mind will have more negative variables to filter through in real time. This model was made in 2007 by Ann Hill, James Watson, Danny Rivers, and Mark Joyce. It builds off the Eisenberg model of communication identity from 2001. Perception is the process of making meaning from things we experience in our environment. We can break down perception through three different stages, selection, organization, interpretation. Selection is the process of picking a certain stimulus to focus on. Floyd discusses three reasons why certain things spark our selection process. Breaking expectation, repetition, intensity of stimulus. Organization involves your mind applying perceptual schema to it. Interpretation, that's your own conclusion based on all the information provided. The internet is omnipresent in our lives. Because of this, we have to adapt and learn to communicate through this technology. If you wish to be perceived as credible and attractive, your avatar should look as human as possible, page 116. This statement is based on Christine Nowaki and Christian Rao's research with college students. I do agree that it's probably best to do this because your avatar is a representation of yourself, but I believe the internet is a great place for self-expression. And at the same time, perceptions online can be misunderstood and manipulated no matter how hard you try. Words, they're a representation of ideas, observations, feelings, and thoughts. Take that concept and imagine you were born in America, a land of the free, home of the brave, and only spoke English. And suddenly, you're teleported via spacecraft into Hong Kong. How are you going to survive? Hopefully, someone out there knows English, which they probably do thanks to how interconnected our information highway is. Even a doge communicates through body language. Yet it seems that humans are the only species that are capable of complex communication. Offering a hug might be considered disrespectful depending on the situation. The meaning of words are situated in the people that use them. This is why your selection and pool of words to draw from is very important. I lived in Japan for over three years and was able to easily survive with a collection of about five to ten common Japanese phrases and body language. Piercing the language barrier with just a tad bit of studying made me feel a lot more connected when having conversations with foreigners. Ohayou gozaimasu. The purpose of self-disclosure 
is to express a truth about ourselves. Now we should examine the aspects of self-disclosure and weigh the pros and cons. Language, it expresses affection and intimacy, but can easily be used to make people feel uncomfortable or insulted. Self-disclosure, it's a risky business, especially in the year 2022 where communication has been changed forever by technology. It's never a good thing to offend somebody on purpose, but it's also not a good thing to smother your personality, tiptoeing around certain individuals. A way around this is to use euphemisms, vague descriptions that symbolize something more blunt or harsh. One benefit of self-disclosure is creating a positive communication climate. While some people may use false disclosure as a means of deception, we learned in the last chapter that human beings generally trust body language rather than words. There's plenty of philosophies that could weave into the self-disclosure discussion. As example, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, only speaking. I treat everything someone says to me as an opportunity to get to understand them a little bit better. Everything starts from within ourselves. A negative self-concept can destroy somebody's future. A positive self-concept can create the path needed towards sustained happiness. We pay attention to what individuals look and sound like. There's a few reasons why an individual dresses the way they do. It's authentic self-expression based on their concept of self or deception used for influencing others. 95% of the times I have lied in my life, I was caught in the moment, caught in the act, and because of this, I cling to the idea that I'm a terrible liar. This concept of myself promotes honest self-expression rather than false and empty words. Social comparison, it's a quick way to kill your self-esteem. We should guide our own thoughts away from anything that isn't true because at the end of the day, we are in control of our own self-concept and we should try to praise ourselves and never let our mind get too corrupted. Our identity and self-concept are the main things that affect our communication style. None of us are born with the self-concept. So with this in mind, we have hope for the future to improve our communication skills. My communication style for the majority of my life was passive. I joined the military and with that chapter of my life, I learned how to be assertive and found great joy in being expressive. A combination of our influences, role models, childhood experiences, and beliefs about ourselves all come together when we attempt to communicate. Most people experience forced passiveness when they're employed and have to do customer service. Through study and communication, we can recognize that we always have a choice on how we communicate. We are never a slave. I like to assume that most people have cringe memories from their past, where they acted with emotional immaturity. I make less mistakes as I get older, but life is a long process of learning. Dating in high school was the training ground for me, where I could make mistakes and discover the value of authentic expression. Now the most important emotional communication skill is the ability to recognize and identify your own emotions. And after identifying our emotions, we can run it through our own filter of verbal expression or choose to keep it to ourselves. I was taught as a young man that crying is a sign of weakness. This toxic doctrine builds up in your mind throughout the years, and any emotion that is not expressed can become dangerous. My mother, she was born in the Philippines and put in forced child labor after her parents died. Luckily, she was able to escape to America where she turned 18. I spent most of my life growing up around my mother and her upbringing dictated the way she raised us. My favorite story she would tell us is that adults used to tie bad kids to the tree and let the ants bite them for hours. I remember being very confused as a child when I first had sleepovers at my friend's house and there wasn't violence occurring in the home. Now this is a pretty old school representation of Asian culture and it's not very prevalent in America, at least I don't believe it's the common way that parents raise their children. But I struggled a lot when I was younger with my own understanding of what it means to be masculine. Traditional masculinity tends to project weakness, 
emotional expressiveness, and characteristics or behaviors that resemble those of Wham. Having to figure out who I am as a male human in the early 2000s was difficult because the internet didn't blanket our entire society. That lack of access to information meant I had to figure it out on my own accord through conversations, reading books, physical ones. Nowadays, there's a new problem. Information overload or analysis paralysis. At the touch of a button, boop, you have access to millions and billions and trillions of opinions. So which ones do you believe? The one with the highest view count? This is where having discernment is important to understanding what it is you actually believe. I'm glad that the term androgynous is more commonly spoken about. I never heard that term until later in life, and I don't believe it's bad to be masculine, it's not bad to be feminine. A bad thing is to have internal conflict that makes you act in a way that isn't a real representation of yourself.